everybody. It's good to be with you. Um, last Sunday I wasn't here. Uh, our associate pastor came down and preached the word, and I trust that that went well, but I was up in um, Morgan Hill because our oldest son, our first son, happens to be the last to get married, and he became engaged a couple months ago, and so he and his fiance were in town uh, meeting the rest of the family. What I mean by that is we had the privilege of meeting her back in July, but my other son and his wife and the four grandkids uh, didn't have a chance to meet her, and so we spent the weekend with my other son and his fiance, and it was an exciting time. But I'm glad to be able to come back here and be with you again today and open the word with you. It was wonderful to be able to worship with you in song just a minute ago, and now we're going to turn our heart to God's word. And so um, I also want to pray and ask the Lord to bless his time and our time as we look into another part of John 10. And so join with me. Let's pray, and then we'll get right to it. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you are with us, that we've gathered together this morning for the express purpose of singing your praises and hearing and proclaiming and receiving your word for the purpose of ministering to each other, for the purpose of building each other up in our faith. And we want to thank you, first of all, that we're able to meet freely. There's nothing hindering us from being here. You've brought us all together we know that you have things for each and every one of us, and we pray that you would be working in our lives according to the plan that you have marked out for us for this morning and for this day. Father, I also want to pray for the church as a whole. I know that the elders, Darren and Goliath and Michael, are in a pastoral search. They've got some good resumes that they're looking at. And I would pray, first of all, that you would give those three men wisdom as they have to look through resumes and have discernment regarding which ones might be a fit and which ones won't be. I pray that you would give them great discernment so that they can ultimately zero in on the right person that you have to come and serve your church here, Grace Bible Church. I pray for the congregation that you would give them grace to be praying for Darren and for Michael and for Goliath, and that they would be praying wisdom upon these elders, that they would be giving encouragement to them, and that they would be letting them know that they're with them, looking forward to what you're going to do. And then finally, Father, I pray that you would raise up a man who loves you with a family who loves you, a man who is a spiritual man, first and foremost, a man who desires to do your work in your way, using your tools for your glory. Please draw that person to this place in your timing and then use that man to bless this congregation in the same way that you used John before him to bless this congregation. And speaking of John, I pray for him this morning I thank you that he and his wife arrived safely back in Texas. I pray that you would be with him in a special way, that you would encourage them, that you'd be building them up in their faith, and that you would help them become engrafted into that new congregation where they're going to serve. I know, Father, that you moved them there. You've got a purpose for that. We pray that you would work that purpose. And now, Father, we turn our attention to what's going to happen in just a moment. We pray that you would use this message from your word and apply it by your spirit to each heart that's here. I pray that you would build up your people in their faith. And if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't belong to you, Father, through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, that this might be the day that they believe and come to be saved and come to know you. Please grant that. Finally, I pray, give me grace as I teach that I might be true to you and your word first of all. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if you've got a copy of the Bible, hard copy, or electronic, scroll or open to John chapter 10, John chapter 10, and while you turn there, let's get started. 
Around 52 years ago, my family began to attend a church where the good news of Jesus Christ was preached. Now, this church was in Memphis, Tennessee. That's where I grew up, Memphis, Tennessee. And we began to attend this church where the good news was preached. I was in the 10th grade at the time. And shortly after we began to attend that church, I came to faith in Christ, and I began to try to follow Jesus. And I say what I say in the way that I say it for a reason. I began to try and follow Jesus. Because from a human perspective, that's what we do when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. We come to that place where we hear the good news that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to earth, took on flesh 2,000 years ago, and that he came on a rescue mission, and he came to rescue people like us. And he lived his life, and then he died on the cross, and then he rose again from the dead so that we could come to have a relationship with God the Father, so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so that we could be delivered from death, so that we could be saved. And we come to believe that. Some of us come to believe that. And then having believed, we begin to try to follow Jesus. And as we begin to try to follow Jesus, um, our following is imperfect at best, right? It's imperfect at best. We find that many things seem to hinder us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, talks about um, things that are weights that we need to lay aside and the sin that clings so closely. And we find that following Jesus is a challenge. Um, It's a challenge. Often our imperfections and sinful tendencies are kind of like that little piece of plastic wrap that sticks to your finger. You know, you unwrap a present and maybe a little sliver of plastic is stuck to your finger and you want to throw it in the garbage can. But because of the static, it sticks to your finger. Have you ever done that? And you change hands and it sticks to your finger and it's like impossible to get it off. And that's what happens to us. We have these sin struggles. We have these struggles with imperfection. And in the same way we can't seem to throw that piece of plastic away, sometimes we just can't seem to throw that sin pattern away. Uh, We might struggle with any number of things. We might struggle with fear. We might struggle with pride. We might struggle with insecurity or emotional instabilities. We might have an anger problem. Many people have problems with anger. And especially when you get married, it leaks out. It doesn't leak out so much during the courtship phase. And then you find yourself married to that person. You're one and only. And all of a sudden, you find you've got an anger problem. And we laugh about it, but anger can be a real deal breaker many times. It hurts many people, and it hurts us as well. We may have a covetous problem. We may have a lust problem. Perhaps we struggle with jealousy. Maybe we struggle with envy or any number of other things. And like um, that piece of plastic wrap that sticks to our fingers, we seem not to be able to overcome these particular sin patterns, this particular struggle for a time. Can you relate to what I'm talking about? I know that some of you can. We try to follow Jesus. But we trip often. In this state of affairs, which is actually a normal part of the Christian life, by the way, will often cause us to question sometimes whether we are really truly Christians or not. Have you ever been there yourself? Do you ever enter times of doubt? And what is needed if you're a Christian this morning What is needed as you are trying to follow Jesus so imperfectly is assurance. Assurance from God that you truly do belong to the person that you originally believed in, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need that assurance that despite how imperfectly we follow Christ, we still belong to him. And the way that we gain assurance is from the scriptures. We have to look to the scriptures, God's word, 
And as we do, the Holy Spirit uses those scriptures to give us assurance, especially when we find ourselves in the midst of doubt, because it is there that we learn just how secure we are as believers in Christ in the salvation Jesus purchased for us. We learn there just how secure we are if we have faith in Christ. We learn how secure we really are despite our stumbles and despite our tumbles. We may come across a scripture from Psalms, for example, that says that the steps of a good man, the steps of a good woman are ordered by the Lord. Even though they fall, they're not utterly cast down. Because the Lord upholds them with his hand. And that's a scripture that gives us assurance. And the scripture we're going to consider today is actually a scripture that reveals just how secure in Christ we as his followers, we as believers in Christ, really are. It reveals just how secure you are in Christ if you believe. Now, the scripture I want to cover is John chapter 10, 22 to 42. I want to read it. I should have said 22 to 30. I want to read it with you. And so I believe you stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to ask you to stand again as I read. I'm going to start in verse 22 of John chapter 10. And then after that, we're going to sit back down and we'll get right into it. So hear the word of the Lord. The scriptures say this, at that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And then the next verse says, The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. That's the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now the main idea of this scripture is this. Christ's sheep, and I could say by extension, Christ's church, Christ's sheep and Christ's church are secure in Christ's hand. Christ's sheep, Christ's church are secure in God's hand. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And that's the big lesson for us today. And the reason this is true has little to do with you, has little to do with me. It has everything to do with him everything to do with Christ that's why we're secure it has everything to do with him now let me give you the background to our main point the main point is in verses 22 to 24 at that time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon so the Jews gathered around him That's the background. And so there's this feast going on. So what in the world is the Feast of Dedication? Well, the Feast of Dedication was not one of the major feasts laid down in the Pentateuch, the law that the Jews were to to follow year to year. The Feast of Dedication was a feast that was added by the Jewish people after a certain event took place. And the Feast of Dedication celebrated a Jewish victory. It celebrated a Jewish victory led by a man named um, Judas the Hammer Maccabeus that says something about what kind of guy he might have been. 
Judas the Hammer Maccabeus, where the forces of the pagan Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes were defeated, and the temple which they had desecrated was recaptured by the Jews and was rededicated by the Jews. That took place in 164 B.C., and so that's what they were doing. The Feast of Dedication was this celebration where the temple was liberated and was rededicated to the Lord. And it's very interesting that this Feast of Dedication was being celebrated at the time that the true liberator, Jesus Christ, happened to be on the earth and happened to be in the temple. That's very significant because Jesus is the true liberator and he liberates us from death and from sin. And he was teaching in the temple. And true to form, at this point he gets surrounded by people. He's surrounded by this group of Jews. And obviously the term Jew here doesn't refer to all Jews. Jesus' disciples were Jewish. Jesus himself was Jewish. All of the New Testament books in our New Testament were written by Jewish people, save one. That was the Gospel of Luke. And so the term Jews simply means those Jews that were among the Jewish leadership and those Jews who didn't believe and were resisting the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this group of Jews gather around him, and Jesus is asked a question. Second part of verse 24. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now let me just say this. If you look back at John 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9, you can deduce that they already know. They already know who Jesus is. He's given manifold proofs that he is the Christ of God. And as a matter of fact, at the end of John chapter 5, we had it recorded that he has given them four undeniable proofs regarding who he is. John the Baptist was a witness to who he is. The scriptures are a witness to who he is. The Father had borne witness to who he is. His works bore witness to who he is. No one could have done the works he did except he be who he was, the Christ of God. And so these people already knew who he was. They knew the answer to that question, but they ask it anyway. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And so then Jesus begins to answer them. And the answer to their question that Jesus gives comes in two parts. The first part is that he makes a contrast. And then the second part of his answer is he gives a promise. And so let's look at those two parts of Jesus' answer. Uh, the contrast is between two groups of people. Those who are his sheep versus those who are not his sheep. He contrasts these two groups of people in verses 25 and 26. Follow along with me. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. Let's stop right there for a second. There you've got this contrast between those who are not his sheep and those who are, are his sheep. And verse 25 and 26 describe those who are not Jesus' sheep. Now those who were not Jesus' sheep were characterized by one root sin, the sin of unbelief, the sin of unbelief. Despite all the proofs Christ had laid out, his works, the testimony from the Father, the testimony of the Scripture, the testimony of John the Baptist, and by this time, the testimony of a man that was blind from birth, that he healed. Despite all those things, these folks didn't believe. They're trapped in their unbelief. They're characterized by unbelief. Now, why didn't they believe? Well, Jesus says something very interesting. 
Verse 26, you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. You do not believe because you're not among my sheep. Now, that's a very interesting statement. Notice what the verse says and what the verse doesn't say. The verse says, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. It doesn't say because you don't believe you're not my sheep. Or rather, it doesn't say you're not my sheep because you don't believe. Meaning, if you do believe, you become one of them. And it's very important to kind of see that distinction. The reason you're, you, you aren't believing is because you're not my sheep in the first place. And that's not the first time Jesus has talked about that. We'll look at some of these other places in a moment. But this describes these who are not his sheep. And it implies that those who are giving him so much, so much, so much resistance were doing so because they had not been given to him by the Father. And so because they weren't his sheep, that's the causative. That's why they didn't believe. Now, by way of contrast, verse 27 describes those who are Christ's sheep and those who were Christ's sheep in those days and those who are Christ's sheep in our day are characterized by three qualities. Uh, First of all, he says, my sheep hear my voice. How do you know if you're one of Christ's sheep? Do you hear his voice? He's already mentioned that in chapter 10, verse 3. Um, The the sheep hear his voice. That is, the sheep that are going to follow the true shepherd hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. And then he goes on to say, a stranger they will not follow. So his sheep hears his voice. Now this is a lesson from shepherdology. And if you know anything about sheep, then you immediately make the connection. Sheep are very interesting creatures and they bond with their shepherd very personally. So a friend of mine told me one time that she had gone visiting a friend of hers and that friend of hers took care of this big flock of sheep and they were pinned up at the time and they went out. Her friend was going to show her the flock and they go out to the fence and her friend was whispering. And the sheep are out in the, out in the pasture on the other side of the fence kind of far away. And finally my friend said, why are we whispering? And her friend said, We're whispering because if they hear my voice, they'll all come run to the fence. And I don't want them to do that. That's a quality of sheep. First century shepherds generally named their sheep. They had a name for each sheep. They could come up to the pen that Jesus was speaking of in the first part of John 10 and call their sheep by name. And when each sheep heard its name, and they knew that that voice was the voice of their shepherd, they would come to the shepherd. And as it was then, so it is now with sheep. That's the analogy Jesus is using. My sheep hear my voice. Now, back in the day, the people listening to Jesus there in the temple were actually hearing his literal voice. We don't hear his literal voice today. And so how does his sheep hear his voice today? Jesus' sheep today hear his voice through his word as it is applied by his spirit. And so as the word is read, as the word is proclaimed, as the word is taught, those who are Jesus' sheep will hear Jesus' voice speaking through the word as the Holy Spirit sheds light on the word Because they belong to Jesus. That's why if you study down through the ages, uh, the central activity of people of God, whenever God was moving and drawing people, has always been to teach, to speak, to share, to preach the word. Because it's in the word that the sheep that belong to Jesus hear his voice. And the Spirit works through the Word 
and draws them. And if you're in Christ already, the Spirit works through the Word to illuminate His Word so that we know that Jesus the shepherd is speaking to us. And you know what's interesting? That applies if you're a Christian, whether you're reading Old Testament text or New Testament text. Because it's all the Word of God. From Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation chapter 22, it's all the Word of God given to the people of God as though God wrote a book just for you personally. And once you come to faith in Christ, you hear the voice of your chief shepherd Jesus as he speaks to you through the word. So my sheep hear my voice. That's the first quality of one of Jesus' sheep. Now here's the second. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. Little short phrase packed with meaning. My sheep hear my voice. Jesus knows them. His sheep are known by him. Why? Because the Father gave them to him. In fact, if you look back over at John chapter 6 and you read the 36th and 37th verse, this is what you'll read. Jesus speaking, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe And then he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So there was another contrast, those who weren't believing and those who did believe, those who are coming to him. Those who um, come to him are those who are known by him, and they're known by him by the Father because the Father gave them to him. And you know what, brother? You know what, sister? This is absolute wonderful news for us. It's wonderful news for us as individual Christians. It's wonderful news for us as a church. What it says is that if you're a believer in Christ this morning, you're not a number. You're not a number. You're not the number 324,132. All of us are identified in our, in our nation by a number. And in any real application, you usually have to put that number down. It's called your social security number. And that's the way the government knows you, and that's the way they differentiate between you and another person that might have your name. You say, no, wait a minute, I've got a unique name. No, you don't. If you Google your name on Facebook, you'll find 50 people that have the same name that you do. One time, my wife and I couldn't get a mortgage loan because there was a lien on a house that we'd reneged on. And what had happened was some dude that had my exact name had bought a house and reneged on the loan. How did they differentiate between us? My social security number is different than his. So then they could differentiate and we were able to buy the house we bought in Gilroy. But to the government, generally speaking, you're first a number and then they connect a number to your name. Now that's not the way that it is with you if you're a believer in Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, You're a believer in Christ because Jesus knows your name. He knows who you are. He knows you by name. He called you by name. He drew you to himself as his personal object of love. He knows you by name. That's intimate. That's connected. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And then the next quality is, his sheep follow him. Verse 27c. His sheep follow him. Now, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, if you're out on a hike with a friend, and your friend knows the way through the forest, and you're off the trail, and you're trailblazing, what does it mean to follow your friend? We all know what it means. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. But there are some practical ways that this fleshes out. To follow Jesus means we believe what he says because he gives us instruction for our lives. John 14, 6 says that Jesus speaking, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, I'll tell you simply what that verse means. Jesus is saying that he was, he was and is the way to God. He was and is the truth about God. 
and he is the life from God. And no one's going to come to the Father but through him. He gives us life. He teaches us the way to God and how to walk with God. He manifests the truth about God. If I'm following Jesus, I'm going to let my heart and mind be shaped by that truth. He gives all kinds of instructions. If you want to have a whole batch of instructions, read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's known as the Sermon on the Mount. There are all kinds of instructions Jesus gave. Um, One of the ways we follow is that we believe what he says. And it means also we strive to obey what he instructs, albeit ever so imperfectly. And so we're called by one of the divine writers to consider that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. And so we are called to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us or that clings so closely. And we're to run with patience the race set before us as Christians, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised its shame, and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father on high. Uh, To follow Jesus means we're doing that. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 to 17 actually says something very interesting. Paul said this to Timothy, um, 1 Timothy 3, 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says, all scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so as a follower of Jesus, we're going to be found continuing in what we've learned and have firmly believed, knowing that they're able to make us wise for salvation. It's like a child following a parent on a trail. That's how we follow. If you've got children and you like the outdoors um, and your children are small, you probably have experienced a time when you've gone hiking and your kids are behind you. Maybe, Dad, you're in front and Mom's in back, or maybe Mom's in front or Dad's in back, or if you go by yourself as a parent, you're in front and your kids are behind you, and you walk along the path, you walk along the trail. And if you're like me, every once in a while, you turn around and make sure that the son is behind you. I had two sons. I want to make sure my son's behind me or both of them are behind me. And every once in a while, they'll trip on a root and fall down. What happens? You say, okay, come on, get up. You're all right. Let's go. Get up. You're all right. And they would follow. They would follow. They would follow. Um, that's the way children follow their parents. And that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Do you follow Jesus in your daily life? Is he the most important person for you to be following? You know, what's interesting, the year 2020 and 2021 was a huge test of everybody's faith. Do you remember 2020 and 2021? And the COVID deal? The gift that just kept on giving? Let me ask you a question. I'm going to be graced, Lord willing, to preach here next week. I'm going to talk more about this. But as you look back on 2020 and 2021, who or what was the main thing you were following through that difficult time? Was it Jesus? Or was it the swirl of the many narratives? that swirled around us like flies in Egypt and that we're always trying to pull our attention. Test yourself. That will not be the last test that faces you or that faces the church in California. But my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He's the primary person that one of his sheep Follow. Now listen, that's the contrast 
those who are not Christ's sheep, because you're not my sheep, you don't believe. And those who are my sheep, Jesus says, you hear my voice, I know you, you follow me. So that's the first part. He gives a contrast. But then Jesus gives a promise. And the promise is fantastic. I'm going to read it, verses 28 to 30, and then we'll unpack it. But after he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's the promise. Now, this promise is threefold. The first part of the promise is this. Jesus gives them eternal life. And again, I want you to notice what it says versus what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, I gave them, past tense. And it doesn't say, I will give them, future tense. Rather, the word is, I give them eternal life. What does it denote? It denotes a constant giving of life from the source of life, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A constant flow, a constant giving of life that is eternal in its nature coming from the Son, Jesus Christ. Because why? He's the way to God, he's the truth about God, and he's the life from God. And if I have spiritual life and you have spiritual life, it's because that eternal life from God has come from him to you. I give them eternal life. That's the first part of the promise. And I can't help but think of a pilgrim's progress analogy whenever I read that text, and I want to share it with you. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? All right, a few of you have. If you haven't ever read it, you should pick up a copy, and if you have read it, you should pick up your copy and read it again. It's a good thing to be reading all the time. But part of my favorite, one of my favorite parts is when this guy Christian who is fleeing from the city of destruction and he's en route to the celestial city, meets this guy evangelist and the guy evangelist takes him to what was called in the analogy the interpreter's house. And there was something that happened in the interpreter's house. It just knocks me over. I just got to read it to you. So in the interpreter's house, Bunyan wrote that he saw in his dream that the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a place where there was a fire burning against the wall. So you get the picture, right? So there's a wall right here, and there's a fire burning against that wall. That's an interpreter's house. There's a fire burning against the wall. And there's one standing by it, always casting much water upon it to quench it. So you can visualize that. There's a fire burning against the wall, there's somebody standing next to it with these big buckets of water, trying to quench it, trying to quench it, trying to quench it. And then he says, yet the fire did burn higher and hotter. Then said Christian, what does this mean? The interpreter answered, this fire is the work of grace that is worked in the heart. He that cast water upon it to extinguish it and put it out is the devil. But in that you saw the fire notwithstanding burn higher and hotter, you shall also see the reason of that. So he had him about to the backside of the wall. So he takes him behind the wall. And this is what he sees behind the wall. He saw a man with a vessel of oil in his hand, which he did also continually cast, but secretly into the fire. So you get the picture, right? There's this person on this side of the wall trying to quench this fire, but the fire burns hotter and hotter. And then when he goes around to the back side of the wall, there's somebody else standing there, and he's throwing oil on the fire, and that's what makes the fire hotter and hotter. Because anybody that knows a little bit about the dynamics of fire knows that you don't throw oil on a fire. You don't throw oil on a kitchen fire. It'll burn your kitchen down. Because if you throw oil on a fire, it'll make the fire burn hotter and hotter. That's the picture. What's the interpretation? Christian says, what does this mean? Now listen to this. 
This is key. The interpreter answers, this is Christ. The person behind the wall was Christ. The person pouring the oil is Christ. This is Christ who continually, with the oil of his grace, maintains the work already begun in the heart by the means of which, notwithstanding what the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. I give them eternal life. Bunyan captured that in a word picture in Pilgrim's Progress. And our enemy comes against us in the storm's rage. And sometimes it's like our fire is going to be put out. There's a promise in Isaiah that says of Christ, a bruised reed he won't break, and a smoking flax he will not quench until he's brought forth justice to victory. That's another way to say what Bunyan captured in Pilgrim's Progress. So when I'm in a place in my faith that I'm just a, a, a smoking flax, I'm a wick, It has a little bit of a glow and a lot of smoke, and it's almost like I'm about to go out. When I've been suffering, and I'm so bruised that I'm like a bruised reed, and I'm about to break in half, we have the promise that Christ will not quench me, the smoking flax, and will not break me, the bruised reed, And the prophecy was until he brings forth justice to victory. And he accomplished that, satisfying the justice of God on the cross so that his people can be given eternal life and not be quenched by the tests and trials of the world. So that's the first thing. Um, That's the first thing. He gives us eternal life. And that eternal life is just what it says, eternal. Sometimes I like to ask a person, so hey, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yeah. So Jesus brings eternal life, right? They say, yeah. And then I'll ask, so when does eternal life begin? You know what people are tempted to say? Oh, after I die and go to be the Lord, that's when it begins. Actually, no. Eternal life is a life that's eternal. For a human person, for a guy or a gal that believed on Christ, practically it began in your life when you came to trust Christ and you were given life, right? And it'll last forever. Here's the second part of the promise. Verse 28b, and they will never perish. They will never perish, never perish, never perish, never perish. Let that be burned into your heart. If you're a Christian, you will never perish, never perish, never perish. Now, if you remain and live long enough in Jesus to come back, your body's going to die. I was walking through a cemetery just a couple days ago and looking at all the tombstones, and particularly the tombstone of a lady that I've known for years who just went home to be with the Lord. Her body died, and it's buried in that grave. But you know, that's just the shell. She's not there. She's in glory with Christ. When I was growing up as a kid, you know what a cicada is? Does anybody know what a cicada is? A cicada is this big bug that makes this heck of noise up in the trees during the summer in the south. But you know what? During a certain time of year, you could walk through our backyard and you'll find all these shells and you pick it up. And it was the perfect outline of an insect. And all the legs were intact and everything. But there was a split down its back where the back had split open and the insect escaped from the shell. Right? And so the insect is alive. It's up in the trees singing its heart out. But it left its shell there on the ground. And that's basically a picture of who we are as Christians. If we die before Jesus comes back, We're going to leave this shell of a body and it's going to be buried and we're going to be singing praise to the Lord in glory. Why? Because in Christ we will never perish. 
It's not possible to perish. And that gives such great hope. Uh, my oldest son, the one that's about to get married, has done two combat tours in Iraq. The first was in Iraq. The second was Iraq and Afghanistan. And he's a Christian. But before he went out on his second deployment, uh, because we were pretty sure that he was going to go into harm's way, um, we just talked to him and said, listen, we got to have assurance from you that you're okay with Christ. And we knew he was a Christian. But we wanted to know from his lips that he was still holding fast to his faith. He'd been gone for a while in the Marine Corps. And this is what he said. He said, listen, I have a solid faith in Christ. I know that in Christ I will never perish. And what that means for me, dad and mom, is that if I step on an IED in, in Iraq or Afghanistan and I'm vaporized, if I get shot a bunch of times by uh, one of the opposing forces, if a grenade goes off and kills me, if I die in a plane crash, whatever happens, I know that that's only the end to my body, but not to me. And that is what empowers me to do what I do as a military officer in a combat zone. That's a practical outflow of knowing this. They will never perish. How does that apply to you? How afraid of death are you? How hard will you fight for life when it's time for you to leave this life and you know that the Lord is calling your name, calling your name, calling your name? And I don't want you to misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with wanting to live. But for a person who has this life only as their hope, this life is all that they have. But if you know Jesus, you've heard his voice, he knows you, you follow him, you will never perish. And so when it comes time for your body to die, that's not the end of you, but it's only the beginning. And you're going to leave your body and go into the presence of the Lord where Christians ought to want to be. Paul was able to say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So you will never perish. What's the third thing? The third part of the promise is this. No one can snatch them out of God's hand. Notice verse 28 and verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. But before Jesus said that, he said, I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so you've got two hands in the analogy. You've got Christ's hand, and you've got the Father's hand. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. No one can snatch you out of Christ's hand. The Father is greater than all. And that's the picture you have. You're in Christ's hand, in the Father's hand, and no one can snatch you out of God's hand. Because Christ and Father are one. That's verse 30. You know, I said, I said earlier, I'll say again, I grew up in the South. And if you've ever been in any of the states in the South during the springtime or the summertime, you'll know when the, when the sun starts going down and it's dusk, you can look out across the front yard or a field, and all of a sudden you'll see all these specks of light. You ever seen that? Right Now, those are fireflies. We used to call them lightning bugs. And as kids, we delighted in catching lightning bugs. And you could run out in the yard, and they didn't fly fast. And here's a lightning bug lighting up in front of you. And you grab it in your hand, and you go like that. And it's in your hand. And then you look in, and you can see it lighting up. Because it's in your two hands. You know, when you caught a lightning bug you automatically were protecting it from some of the bird predators that flew around at dusk or the bats that constantly flew around at dusk. And there wasn't a predator that flew around in our front yard or in our field that could snatch that lightning bug out of our hand. It was just secure. And as it was secure. 
it could keep on lighting up and lighting up and lighting up and lighting up without fear that some predator was going to put its light out. And that's a beautiful way to picture this truth. And so we've worked through this text. What's the main point? Uh, the main point is Jesus Christ's sheep are secure in the Father's hand. Jesus Christ's sheep are secure in God's hand. Jesus' church are secure in the hand of God. Rest in your security. So beyond what's already been said, how do, we, um, how do these truths apply to us today? Well, let me just say in two other ways they apply. So here's the first. If you do not believe the good news about Jesus for yourself, what this teaching says is that if you persist in your unbelief until you die, let me say it again. What the teaching says is if you do not believe the good news about Jesus for yourself and you persist in your unbelief until you die and you die without believing the good news about Jesus that he died and rose for sinners like you, it will be your choice. That'll be the path you choose and it will be because you were not one of Christ's sheep. That's scary. So what should you do? Well, if what I just said alarms you, start pursuing Christ. Cry to God. Cry to God that he give you faith. Claim Christ's promise in John 6. Go back to John 6 really quickly. And let me show you what I mean. John 6 is a chapter that's just filled with Jesus telling the truth about the dynamics of salvation but calling people to believe. If you look at John 6, 35, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever, this is what I want you to see, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. That's what I mean. Claim Christ's promise in John 6, 37. John 6, verse 40. What does verse 40 say? For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Listen, don't get hung up. And what I said, that if you persist in your unbelief, it means you weren't one of Christ's sheep. You're not exhorted by Jesus to get hung up on that stuff. There's some mystery in that that we'll never comprehend. But Jesus in his time here said over and over and over and over and over and over, even to the Jews that were resisting him, believe, 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 believe. Come to me, believe on me, trust in me. And so if you're not a believer, that's what you're called to do. Confess your sins. Our sins keep us from God. Pursue Christ until you believe. What if you're a believer? If you do believe the good news in Jesus Christ, that he paid your sin debt when he died on the cross, that he rose again from the dead, that he's alive today at the right hand of the Father, that he's alive today making intercession for you, if you believe that, if you believe that, it means Christ gives you eternal life. It means that you heard his voice because you're one of his sheep. He's given you eternal life. Nobody can snatch you out of his hand. It means that you're more secure in the hands of God the Father and in Jesus Christ than the lightning bug used to be secure and my or my friend's palms. That's what it means. You're safe. You're safe in the hands of God. No one can pluck you from the Father's hand. And it means that the Romans 8 promise 
applies to you. Let me read it to you. Romans 8, 31, down to the end of the chapter. Listen to these marvelous words, brothers and sisters. What then shall we say to these things? These things are everything Paul wrote from Romans 1.18 to verse 30 of chapter 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? That's a marvelous truth in itself. The Son of the living God is praying for you as an intercessor right now at God's right hand if you're a believer. Amazing. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, more than conquerors, more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So keep believing and keep your eyes fixed on Jesus until you die and go to be with him or he comes back Whichever comes first, amen and amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we could be together this morning, and we thank you that we could sing your great praises, and we thank you that we could hear from your word. And we just ask you now to take what's been spoken and seal it to our hearts. Um, I pray for each and every one of your believers that you would enable them along with me to keep in mind, keep in mind, keep in mind, keep in mind these marvelous truths. Because truthfully, Father, the Christian life's a challenge. And when the going gets tough, we need your assurance. And so we pray that you would help us constantly come back to this little text of Scripture to gain assurance. If there are any here in our midst today who are struggling with their assurance, I pray that you would help them really delve deeper into this little short text. And as they do, that you would just assure them, assure them, assure them, assure them that they belong to you. And then I pray for those that are with us this morning who don't have faith in you through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that something I said this morning would be used of the Spirit like an arrow to their heart to draw them to yourself. That they would realize that there's no other name under heaven given among men and women whereby we must be saved, saved from sin, saved from death, saved from the grave, saved from judgment, except the name of Jesus and that you would draw them and that they would believe. So thank you for our time together. Use it in our lives. Give us grace in the coming weeks, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me just read you a text in benediction. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, Paul wrote these words, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Christ is in glory now. Someday he'll come back. If he doesn't come back between now and next Sunday, I hope to see you here again in worship, Lord willing. Have a good day in the Lord.